From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Robots in the operating room. It's no longer science fiction. In fact, surgeons are using robots to assist them in a, in a growing number of surgeries, including heart valve repair and prostate removal. Mayo Clinic Radio co-host Dr. Don Davis joins us to help lead the discussion. Also on the program, getting osteoporosis as you get older isn't inevitable. Diet, weight-bearing exercise, and medications can help prevent or slow the progression of bone loss. Co-host Dr. Sanj Kakar will be along to help explore the topic. And I'll be back later in the program to explore the latest in treating age-related hearing loss. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dawn Davis. And I'm Tracy McRae. Learning that you're going to have robotic surgery might give you pause for concern. Just how does it work? Where will your doctor be? Will there be any human beings in the operating room at all? What if the robot ends up having a problem? I haven't thought about that part, but you're right. Me neither, but it yeah. made me a little nervous. Robotic surgery, the more accurate term is robot-assisted surgery, is becoming increasingly common for a number of surgical procedures, including some types of heart surgery. And robot-assisted surgery can actually help your surgeon perform an operation with greater precision than with more traditional approaches. It can also mean faster recovery times because robot-assisted surgery is usually less invasive than traditional open surgery. Here to help us better understand robot-assisted surgery is Mayo Clinic cardiac surgeon, Dr. Joseph Gerani. Welcome to the program, Joe. Thank you for having me. So it's not just the robots taking over the surgical suite. There's, there are real people that are involved in this as well. Absolutely. There's real people involved, but the robot plays a, plays a very, very big part. And some of what you said is true. It actually does facilitate more precision and accuracy and exposure. Uh, and it's less invasive for the patient, and the recoveries are considerably shorter when it's done this way as opposed to the more traditional approach. So I think patients who haven't seen robotic-assisted surgery assume that it's sort of like the airplanes where you sit in the pilot's chair, but the machine does the work, and occasionally you just make sure things aren't crashing. Can you please refresh patients and reassure sure. them that you're actually sitting there with your hands <laughs> on the controls? So, so the setup for robotic heart surgery is there are staff around the patient in the operating room. There, in fact, is a surgeon at the bedside, and in our practice, it's a staff surgeon compared to many other practices where it may be a technician or it may be a resident. And then there's an anesthesiologist, and there are there are staff that surgical assistants that hand instruments and so on and so forth. And the, the robot is not like a human being walking around in the opera room. It actually is this big, it's this big device that has four arms. And these four arms get introduced into the chest cavity through four little holes, maybe a, a little bit bigger than the diameter of a pen. Mm. And, the, and then there's a very small incision that is about the size of a silver dollar where the surgeon at the bedside passes sutures and, and any devices that we're using through that hole. And then the arms of the robot perform the surgery. 
and then there is another staff surgeon that's sitting at the console, which is usually in the corner of the operating room. But there's people at the bedside, and there is a surgeon at the bedside that actually is facilitating uh, the the surgery being performed by the robot. So you actually get two surgeons. You get two surgeons, which is a big, huge bonus for the patient. Absolutely. So most patients who come to see you who hear about robotic surgery probably say, Dr. Duraney, please sign me up for robotic surgery. It seems like it's easier. I can recover faster. But there are probably patients who don't qualify and have to do it the old-fashioned way. So That's a good point. So so first, there is a very short list of procedures that you can apply the robot to. Most of it is valve-related surgery and specifically mitral valve surgery. And that is a procedure that Mayo has a long history. Some of the very, very first mitral valve repairs were done at Mayo. Where is the mitral valve located in the heart? It's in the, almost in the middle of the heart, and it's the, it's the valve between the pumping chamber that pushes blood to the body and the lungs. Okay. And, um, and it's, a, it's actually a common problem in, in the United States to what we call degenerative myxomatous prolapsing mitral valve disease. And almost always the valve can be repaired. That's the first thing. And almost always you can do it robotically if you have an experienced team. So that's probably the most common procedure where the robot is applied. There are other procedures, holes in the heart. There's some congenital defects. The tricuspid valve can also be repaired robotically. It's a little harder to do those, but you can do it. And then there are some limited bypass, coronary bypass operations where you can use the robot to facilitate it. But so it's not for everybody. So that's first the procedure. But then there may be patient variables that preclude them. You know, somebody who's markedly overweight, somebody that's had previous chest surgery, somebody that has bad lung disease, because part of this we need to collapse one lung so we can see what we're doing, and they may not, the other lung may not be good enough. So there are procedure related factors and there are patient related factors. And so at the end of the day, it can't be offered to everybody. It's it ends up being a relatively shorter list. So you mentioned congenital heart diseases means that the kids were born with a defect in their heart. So does that mean that robotic surgery can be done on children or is it reserved for adults? So it depends on the size of the patient. And so, you know, a larger child, probably adolescence and beyond, certainly teenage years when they're more adult size, they could be eligible depending upon the defect. The technology for the robot is evolving, too, so that it can be applied to smaller and smaller patients. But right now, it's not applicable to infants, and it's not applicable to very small children. And you said it's for repairing valves, but not replacing no, valves? No, you could replace the okay. valve. I mean, it's the appeal, of course, is much greater for uh, for repair because the it's better for the patient, and it's always nicer to have our own body parts than to have them replaced. <laughs> now, you said the technology on these robots is evolving very quickly. What's ahead? Well, the robot itself is getting much more sophisticated. The size of the arms and the movable joints in the arms are getting better and better, so it can be applied. Because when you, when you put these little arms inside the body cavity, there needs to be room for sure. these arms to bend and move. And so the bigger the space, the more room there is, the easier it is to do. And so the technology of, of the arms becoming smaller and more joints along the arm will facilitate it being done in patients smaller and smaller. But it, it probably will never get to very small children. And yeah. because this is a relatively new technique, how do surgeons get trained on it? Do you have dummies that you practice on or simulation centers? Do you get to go practice on? Um... <laughs> yes. There's actually there's a credentialing process to do robotic 
you know, robotic surgery of any type. For robotic heart surgery, to give you an example for me, um, there's an online course that you take with an exam. That's the first thing you do. You have to practice on a simulator, which we, which would be very similar to an air, you know, a pilot practicing. I probably I practice hundreds of hours on the simulator before I ever walked into a patient's room. Mm-hmm. And then after you do all that, then you have to go to a center and get credentialed. It's a two-day course where a surgeon proctors you. You actually do robotic heart surgery on a cadaver, and then you get credentialed. Then when you come back home and you start applying it to your practice, for the first few cases, you're proctored by a surgeon that may be an internal surgeon or it may be an external surgeon. And I use lasers a lot in my practice, and people very appropriately ask me, well, Dr. Davis, what happens if a laser malfunctions or a part breaks or the lights go out and the electricity shuts down? What will happen to my procedure? So can you explain if a part breaks or the electricity goes out, what happens when you're in the middle of robotic-assisted surgery? That's a great question. So we actually, there are many, many backup systems in place. So the first is that the, the operating team is very experienced. It's the same people doing it all the time because it requires this constant dialogue and communication between the surgeon at the console and what's going on at the bedside. The second thing is is that we have an internal technician, a sort of a technician slash engineer that is an expert with the robotic technology. So if something malfunctions, that person is physically in the operating room when the case is going on so that if an arm stops moving or a warning light comes up, there's a person there to troubleshoot it. And then in some situations, we actually will have one of the representatives from the company in the operating room too. For example, if you're going to be using a new arm or you're going to be using a new robot, we have more than one person in the room so that if something malfunctions, it can be taken care of. And the worst case scenario is, is that if there was a complete malfunction of the robot and it just was, it just, that was it, it collapsed, it didn't work, we just make the incision a little bit bigger. We do it the old-fashioned way. And if you're in there and the robot's doing just fine, but you realize something else is going on with the patient internally where you need to open the patient up, starting with the robot does not prevent no. you from going in the traditional way. Absolutely not. We actually we are prepared to do that in the event that there's a problem related to surgery or there's an unexpected finding and you need to convert to a more traditional open approach that's ready to go. So at Mayo Clinic, we're very um, lucky and patients are very fortunate because we have such great cardiovascular surgeons and they work very well together in the team model that's classic of Mayo Clinic. Can you talk as a surgeon about the practicalities that benefit the patient and also the care team about giving optimal care when two surgeons get to work on one patient? You know, this is actually, this whole safety thing in medicine is a real buzzword right now, and there's been a lot of discussion at all the society levels, but particularly the procedure-related specialties for high-risk procedures to be done by two staff surgeons. Now, with the robot, it's pretty much a no-brainer because, you know, you have to have somebody at the bedside. You have to have somebody at the console. So the fact that we have electively chosen to make it two staff surgeons, I mean, so the patient has the benefit of two you know, higher intellects and and four highly experienced hands that are involved. And so it's, I mean, it's great for the patient. Is that most of your day is your patients that you work with are robotic assisted no. surgeries? No, it's actually just a, a portion of my practice. So for me, I do on the average 10 to a dozen cases a week in cardiac surgery and probably two or three of them 
are robots. So it's probably 20% of my practice. Now, I would like it to be more, but part of it is is that it, there's logistical scheduling because we got to make sure that both the two surgeons are here. And the robot, as you know, is a very expensive device, and it's shared amongst other specialties. So, I mean, it's not just we don't have one that's all our own on cardiac surgery. It's shared with general surgery and OBGYN and, and thoracic surgery. And urology. So, urology, yeah. There's numerous specialties that use it. So on certain days, you're assigned to the robot. And there are multiple robots on the campus, but even with that, there's so many specialties that use it that you have to, you know, we have certain days where we know it's ours. And we prioritize patients with regards to need. In terms of the timing of their surgery? Yes. Yeah, fortunately, I mean, the the nice thing about robotic heart surgery is that there are no emergency robotic cases. Everything is elective and everything is scheduled so it can be planned. And in fact, the kinds of cases that we're doing with robotic heart surgery. So so they need to get their operation done in the next three to six months. It's not something that needs to be done urgently. If it's something that's urgent, then they're not a candidate for the robot. A practical question for patients. Being a cardiothoracic surgeon, people probably don't wake up and say, oh, I'm feeling funny beats in my chest, or I think my mitral valve is prolapsing. I think I need to go meet Dr. Duraney. Do patients come to you directly, or if they have a heart concern, should they go to a cardiologist first? Should they yeah. go to their primary care doctor first? How should patients patients who have concerns about their heart know when to go to a different doctor and not straight to the surgeon. So in general, this all sort of depends on local issues. You know, if somebody lives in a remote area, they may only have a primary care physician. But in general, they would always start with a cardiologist first. I mean, a cardiologist makes the diagnosis, an echocardiogram is performed, and then depending upon the problem, they know how to channel that patient to a specific surgeon for a specific procedure. Now, if that was all done at home, then the patient may be directly referred to me at Mayo, and we don't need to duplicate another cardiologist at Mayo. But they started with a cardiologist somewhere. I mean, because an echo needed to be done to actually make the diagnosis, and that's done with a cardiologist. We're talking about robot-assisted surgery with Dr. Joseph Duraney. Dr. Duraney is a heart surgeon at Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll find out the difference in recovery times between traditional surgery and robot-assisted surgery. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network work. Welcome back. We're talking about robot-assisted surgery with Mayo Clinic heart surgeon, Dr. Joseph Duraney. So, Dr. Duraney, you said general surgeon, urology. Um, who uses this type of robotic-assisted surgery the most, or is it pretty well divided up? Well, I would, I would say that in all of the specialties, there is a short list of procedures that are very classic robotic procedures. So, you know, in in urology, I know that prostatectomy is something that's a very common robotic procedure. In cardiac surgery, it's mitral valve repair. I think the ENT surgeons are even using the robot for for tumors way back down in the back of the throat, you know, because the, the you know, the instruments are very fine and delicate and the visualization is really good. So, I think amongst all the specialties, there's probably one or two or three procedures that are classic procedures that could be performed with a robot, but that's in the spectrum of probably many, many, many other dozens of procedures that can't be. And we mentioned that it's a benefit to the patient because their recovery time is shortened by so much. How much does that uh, recovery time get shortened when you use a robot? Yes, there actually is no bone breaking and there is no rib spreading with robotic heart surgery. You just work between the space between the ribs. 
and and this is why the recovery is actually the patients are get the breathing tube out in the operating room they're woken up in the operating room and then they go to the ICU for about six hours to recover and then they get out of the ICU that afternoon or evening of surgery and they go to the floor and they're in the hospital for three days and most patients are back to work at two weeks, depending upon what their job is. I mean, if physical labor is not involved with their job, they're back at two weeks. And if physical labor is involved with their job, then it ends up being about three weeks. And we actually have done a cost analysis. And once you have the learning curve is steep, and in the beginning it's more expensive, but once you have a refined team, the operating times become really short, and then the hospital stays short, and it's actually less expensive to use the robot. So there's less expensive hospital costs. And, of course, if you look at society at large and return to work, there's going to be a lower cost to society because people will be out of their job for shorter periods of time. And are people away from work for six weeks with open-heart surgery that's the traditional method because their chest hurts or because it's difficult for them to breathe or because they just had anesthesia for so much longer and it takes them a while to wake up? It's a combination of all the above, but probably mostly it's a bigger incision. You know, there's the bone is divided with an open procedure, so like any major division of bone, it's a it's a six eight weeks for the bone to completely heal. Um, there's going to be more discomfort involved, and I mean, you know, narcotics are usually out of the equation within a week or two, but they're still taking the Motrin's and the Advil's and the Tylenols. They're still sore. Also, patients are a little anemic after heart surgery because of mm-hmm. the use of the heart lung machine, and so there's a little fatigue involved, and all of these things added together sort of drag on the ultimate recovery. So once a person meets their family doctor or cardiologist and they have a diagnosis and a procedure that they desire for you to do and they meet you, there's a step between there because these patients can have low risk, medium risk, or high risk. And a lot of times they go and get a perioperative evaluation to make sure that they're safe enough to go through surgery with you. Can you briefly explain that process and why it's so important? Because I know that at Mayo Clinic, we do that for our patients and it's Mm -hmm. very important. So yes, we actually, for, for things like the robot, and other other sort of high tech based you know um, interventional procedures there's an algorithm so it's the, it's very clear cut I mean for somebody to be I mean when a patient calls with an increase oh am I a candidate for a robot first we look at what the diagnosis is it's got to be a diagnosis that lends itself to a robotic repair and then after that there's a whole there's a checklist of things that need to be done and all the things on that checklist need to clear otherwise they're not a candidate so they get different imaging studies to make sure their blood vessels don't have calcification in it their lung function you know their body size and things so they basically have to fulfill the criteria, and if they do, then they're eligible, and if they don't, then they get excluded. Our kids will grow up and not think twice about having a robot-assisted surgery, but do you have patients right now that think, why don't you think maybe you can just do it? Do they get a little nervous about having a robot helping? Well, you know, actually, it's interesting. I think most of the patients that are searching out care at, at Mayo Clinic, you know, they're they're probably a little more savvy and a little more clever. They're online, they're reading about things, and they're certainly going to be more interested in this kind of advanced technology and innovation so it's it's the exception rather than the rule that i would see somebody that is resistant to it usually people are begging for it (laughs) well thank you dr duraney for helping us better understand robot assisted surgery dr joe duraney is a famous and lovely heart surgeon here at mayo clinic (laughs) she threw that commentary in thanks for being here dr duraney thank you donna thank you tracy Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, managing osteoporosis with diet, exercise, and drugs. And living with age-related hearing loss, what you can do to maintain quality of life when your hearing begins to fade. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Could a pill called metformin that's been used to treat type 2 diabetes for 60 years also be a key to the fountain of youth? So the idea is whether or not this pill can slow down or reverse some of the damage caused by aging. Mayo Clinic anti-aging researchers Dr. Nathan Labrasser and Dr. James Kirkland say there's optimism for metformin, not as a pill to make you look 20 years younger, but as a therapy to prevent diseases such as diabetes, cancer, and maybe even cognitive impairment. The thought is that by preventing age-related changes to your body's cells, metformin could help people live healthier longer, increase their health expectancy. Doctors Labrasser and Kirkland are involved in the TAME study, a clinical trial to test metformin. If it's proven to work, the FDA will consider the drug for use as an intervention for aging. And this would be a major game changer. One that would recognize aging as a treatable condition and allow researchers to develop new ways to prevent the diseases associated with the aging process. And in other news, few sensations are as frightening as not being able to get enough air. Getting short of breath can happen to healthy people, but if it persists, it could be a sign of a medical problem. Mayo Clinic experts say some people blame it on age, but ongoing shortness of breath is usually related to heart or lung conditions. So when should you go get it checked out by your primary care provider? Here's when. If it gets worse, if you're more out of breath than usual when you walk upstairs or walk a moderate distance, if you wheeze during exercise, or if a persistent cough leaves you gasping for air. If it happens suddenly, call 911. And that's your Mayo Clinic Minute. I'm Vivian Williams, and for more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Osteoporosis, the condition that causes bones to become weak and brittle, is commonly associated with aging. But getting osteoporosis as you get older isn't inevitable. Medications, a healthy diet, and weight-bearing exercises can all help prevent osteoporosis, or at least reduce its effects if you have it. Here with an update on treating osteoporosis is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Robert Wormers. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wormers. It's good to see you again. Yep, good to see you too. Osteoporosis is big for both of you guys, actually. Dr. Kakar, isn't this what you spend half of your time or all of your time working with? Well, especially now, Tracy, with the weather turning and uh, when we get snow and ice, a lot of uh, people fall and break their wrists. And uh, we actually um, worked with uh, one of your partners, uh, Dr. Ann Kearns, and uh, we, di- we did a study looking at the high rate of osteoporosis in patients with distal radius fractures. I'm sure that's a lot of people that you see in your practice. Right, so osteoporosis is really has no symptoms until you break a bone. So, in the, in what we determine, or we what's been defined as a fragility fracture, meaning an osteoporosis fracture, is when you fall from a standing height and break your wrist. So, if you slip on the ice and break a wrist, that would be considered a fragility fracture. So, is a lot of osteoporosis located or discovered because of an unfortunate fall? Right, so fractures uh, often will come from falls, especially hip fractures and wrist fractures. Now, you can get spine fractures, which sometimes can be from a fall, but here in Olmstead County, uh, only one in three patients who breaks a bone in their back sees their doctor. So this is where you go to your family, you notice your aunt maybe is there, and you notice they're kind of getting curvature to the back, and maybe they're shrinking, and that aging process can also include fractures in the back and loss of height. So are there some patients, though, that don't realize they have osteoporosis until they are in the emergency room because they broke something? 
Or did they already know they had osteoporosis? Well, if you break a hip or a wrist, you may not think you have osteoporosis, but we think you have osteoporosis. Sometimes, you know, you'll say, well, you know, I slipped on the ice and I fell hard enough. But uh, typically, you, uh, there is, that is an indicator of fragility or weakness of the bones. And sometimes people can develop back fractures. And they don't know why they're having back pain and an x-ray is done and they do have osteoporosis they didn't know about. So if I'm sitting there at home and I don't want to wait for a broken bone, uh, who, who's at risk for getting osteoporosis? Right. So there are definitely risk factors for osteoporosis. And in, in menopause, we know that you lose bone. In fact, women lose a dramatic amount of bone in the first three years around menopause. We call that transmenopause. So the year before your last period and the first two years after your period, you lose about 2% per year of your bone, which is a very rapid phase of bone loss. And uh, it varies from woman to woman, but that's kind of the average bone loss. And, and there's differences within ethnicity. So Asians and Caucasians lose more than African-Americans and Hispanics, for example. So, but there's not a whole lot, you know, menopause now, the question is, is whether you should go on hormones or not. And that's another discussion for another speaker and another topic. But there are other risk factors, especially uh, some high-risk ones would be medications like prednisone or steroids. Um, smoking, too much alcohol, typically more than two drinks a day, um, certain diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, low body weight. One of the Nobody ever talks about having uh, the adverse effects of low body weight, but one of the effects uh, of low body weight can be a weakness of the bones. Certain things like bariatric surgery or weight loss surgeries can weaken bones. Family history is important, and we typically will want to know did any of your family members break a hip because there are genetic predispositions to osteoporosis. Well, that's a big, long list. There's a lot of people that can be on that list that you just said. So what things can you do to help prevent getting osteoporosis? Right. So probably the most important things you can do are to lead a healthy lifestyle, just like your mother tells you and your, your grandmother maybe, mm-hmm. which is get enough calcium in your diet. So in a supplement or th- through the food? Right. So if you can't get it in your diet, then it is very reasonable to consider taking a supplement. So it's really critical in younger individuals in those teen years where you're really getting most of your bone mass. Um, you really want to get closer to 1,300 milligrams a day. So you really want to push those dairy-containing um, foods. So typically three dairy serings a day is going to get you pretty close. In a postmenopausal woman, you want again, you're going to want to get 1,200 milligrams a day. And then the other thing is, is exercise. So weight-bearing exercise can be important. Um, strengthening exercises can be important. Um, avoiding too much alcohol, avoiding smoking. Um, and those would be some of the main things you can do. So when you say weight-bearing exercise, uh, does, is swimming considered an exercise that's good for the bones in terms of preventing osteoporosis? So swimming is good for health, but it wouldn't be necessarily the best one for preventing osteoporosis. And in fact, you know, I know you want to know this, but there was a study done at Stanford University where they looked at gymnasts versus swimmers. Now, gymnasts are low body weight, and I just told you low body weight's bad for bones, and swimmers usually are, you know, pretty muscular individuals. But what they found in this Stanford study is that the bone density actually was better in those gymnasts than the swimmers. And so it's that impact exercise that sure. seems to be important. Yeah, and they're jumping around. They land and they have to have strong bones. That makes right. sense. And the more you do that, the stronger they would get. Right. So can it be reversed once it begins if somebody starts, you know, maybe they didn't get enough calcium when they were a teenager or they're on the other side of menopause and already have started to lose some bone? Can you reverse that? 
Yeah, so this is kind of the sad truth. The sad truth is, is you get, you hit a peak bone mass at a young age and you're, you know, around 30, you're kind of peaked out. And from that point on, in general, you know, in that 30 year range, you start to lose bone gradually. And then it's accelerated around the time of menopause in women. Um, so it's hard to gain more bone, I hate to say, without certain, maybe, uh, without, with the exception of some medications that might improve it, but we don't treat young individuals. There's you certain. Minimize the loss is what you're trying to do. What you can do is, right, minimize the loss. But if you start out with a good amount of bone because you've done everything and you have good genetics, then your risk is going to be lower than if you happen to have a genetic predisposition or you have insults to the bone that weaken them early on. Well, it's nice to hear Dr. Wormer said I'm at my peak bone mass. But uh, <laughs> you, you men- I'm not as happy over here, I'm just going to say. Keep going. You, you mentioned that uh, women are at high risk, especially uh, going through osteoporosis. What about men? Does this affect men? It does affect men. Um, men tend to have bigger bones, and we don't truly have a menopause. We have what's called an andropause. So we lose about 1% of our testosterone a year after you peak. So that's, the, again, it's around 30. And then you start to gradually lose testosterone now, uh, whereas women, they get that abrupt change at the time of menopause. So, But men do have osteoporosis. We do even recommend screening. Many national organizations recommend screening for osteoporosis in men, but not until 70 years of age, whereas in women, we're going to do it at a little bit younger age to screen for osteoporosis. How can you decide when uh, medication is needed or what medication would work best? So... There's a couple of ways to diagnose osteoporosis. One is, is you have a fracture or you pick up a fracture on an x-ray. The other one is if you do a bone mineral density test, which is a test where we can actually get an idea of how much mineral is in the bone. This is a very cheap test. I think it's like a $65 test, minimal radiation exposure. We recommend screening women at the time of menopause if they have risk factors for osteoporosis. At 65 years of age, if they don't have risk factors, 70 years of age in men is kind of the standing guideline. So if we do discover osteoporosis, then what we can do is decide using a calculator that you can find on the internet. It's called FRAX, F-R-A-X, and your listeners can Google FRAX, and they can even probably, you don't even need a bone density to calculate your fracture risk. This calculator can tell you over the next 10 years what your risk is of breaking a bone. And in uh, in the U.S., we believe that if you have a hip fracture risk of 3% or higher or a overall fracture risk in the next 10, next 10 years of 20% or higher, that you might be a candidate for medications. And so you mentioned uh, the age of when you have those tests. Is it a one-off test and you're done, or do you repeat this every every year or every five years? Yeah, that's it's a debatable, you know, whether to repeat it or not. So I'll tell you my view, but there may be others who give conflicting views. Uh, if you go to England, for example, they may say, don't ever do a bone density. Just do one, and that's it because the value is low. Personally, what I often will do is it depends on that baseline bone density. So if you have... Uh, a lower bone density, I'm probably going to repeat it in two years. But if you have a very good bone density, I may wait five to ten years before I repeat another bone density. So it really depends on uh, the level of mineral that we see on that study. Well, thanks, Dr. Wormers, for updating us on the latest treatments for osteoporosis. Dr. Robert Wormers is an endocrinologist at Mayo Clinic. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, hearing loss is a common problem as we get older. We'll get the latest on hearing loss treatments, including a drug and clinical trial that may help slow or stop it. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shire. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's not uncommon as you get older to start losing some of your hearing. In fact, turn my headphones up there, would Tracy? You having yeah. trouble hearing me? <laughs> okay. In fact, by age 65, about one in two people have some hearing loss, and you know about mine. Yeah, the loss might not be significant like Dr. Shive's here, but it can nonetheless affect your quality of life. You may have to ask people to repeat themselves or your uh, co-host to turn up your headphones. If it's bad enough, you may even avoid social gatherings because you fear not being able to understand what people are saying. The most common remedy for this type of hearing loss is usually a hearing aid, and sometimes they don't work all that well. But now, there is a drug that's being tested that may help slow or stop age-related hearing loss. Here to talk about age-related hearing loss and the study investigating that drug is Dr. Douglas Sladen. Dr. Sladen holds a Ph.D. in hearing and speech sciences and treats people with speech and hearing problems at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sladen. It's good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Yep, nice to have you here. Uh, Talk loud. (laughs) So our ears, sort of like everything else as we get older, just sort of wear out? Right. After the age of 40, we all start to experience some level of age-related hearing loss. And it, it happens both at the level of the inner ear, but also at the neuronal level. So the neurons that fire all the way up along the auditory system start to lose their function. They start to slow down. Doesn't it seem like this is a more common problem uh, among men than women, or at least that's what the women say? That is what the women say. <laughs> there is no gender difference in terms of age-related hearing loss. Is that right? Now, there are some environmental factors. So perhaps men have more exposure to occupational or recreational noise during their lifetime, which may lead them to uh, more hearing loss than a female. Other than being a male, uh, well, I guess you said there is no... Uh, no difference, really, uh, other than occupational. Are there other risk factors for hearing loss? Absolutely. Hereditary uh, issues can play a part. Uh, medications, there are drugs that are toxic to the inner ear system. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, your own genetics is, is pretty important. So if your mom and dad had age-related hearing loss, you may well get it also. It's more likely that way, yes. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the population is living longer. That's right. It's a we're, huge part of it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we're all aging, and we're you know expecting to be a, a society made up of older people. So age-related hearing loss is not inconsequential. You know, you mentioned decreased ability to understand speech, but it leads to social withdrawal, depression, loss of quality of life. So it's a really huge problem. Isn't it true that oftentimes hearing aids for this problem don't work all that well? The trouble with hearing aids is that they are amplifiers, and so they make sounds louder, but they don't make it necessarily clearer. When I put on my glasses, I have 20-20 vision, but when I put on a hearing aid, I don't necessarily have restored hearing acuity. What I have is louder inputs. So that can overcome the peripheral loss of hearing, but it doesn't overcome the more central loss of processing sound that comes with the aging process. Now, there's medication for everything. And the fact that (laughs) there may potentially be a medication to prevent age-related hearing loss or at least delay it is pretty amazing. Right. In fact, this study is looking at reversing age-related hearing loss, at least while you're on the drug. 
My goodness, how did how did you ever figure that one out? Oh, so that's a good question. I'm not so smart. Um, there is a group in the United Kingdom uh, that has developed a drug called AUT00063. And the purpose, write that down. Yeah. You, it needs a better shelf name, but keep it, going. It does. So the drug uh, intent is to affect the potassium-gated ion channels that are present all along the auditory system. And by affecting these channels, they stay open longer which affects the timing of sound processing. So if we can affect the sound timing, then we should be able to overcome some of the more um, problematic deficits of age-related hearing loss, like understanding speech and noise. So even an adult that has relatively normal hearing sensitivity may have a decrease in their ability to process speech and noise. I have that now at 45. When I go to a party, it's become more difficult for me for you to understand the person next to me when there's a lot of people talking in the background. And that's the problem that we're targeting here. So when do, is this drug going to be available? Is it available? The drug has passed uh, the first phase of an FDA clinical trial. So that's a safety phase to make sure that it's going to be safe in high doses in human trials. And that was passed. We're now on a second uh, phase, and that's an efficacy trial. So now we're trying to prove, does the drug work? So we're looking for adults who are over age 50 who have relatively normal hearing, maybe some mild hearing loss, but are experiencing difficulty understanding speech and noise. Would you prefer that they be orthopedic surgeons? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> or they That's a superior gene pool. <laughs> <laughs> now, I would imagine, I mean, all kidding aside, you must have a lot of people that are excited about, I should hope, being part of this study. Are you, are, you are gathering those folks right now. We are. So we're screening people uh, in the audiology clinic at Mayo uh, Clinic and trying to find people who fit the inclusion criteria. And it may sound relatively easy, like there's a whole bunch of people out there that fit this criteria level. But to be quite honest, uh, once you narrow it down and, and exclude people who are already on other trials or who are already using hearing aids or who don't want to participate in a drug trial, then it gets more difficult. So recruitment is a big issue for us. So the secretarial part of me is saying this radio show is heard on almost 70 radio stations. Wow, that's great. <laughs> so you might have people from all over the country calling you. Are you taking people from everywhere, or do they have to be in the southeastern Minnesota area? That's a really good question. So the drug trial is a 21-day trial in which we do baseline measures and then measures at the completion of the, of the drug study. And so... People should be in relatively close proximity that they can get to us to do the testing. Now, if somebody wants to come from quite a distance, they're welcome to. But there is, you know, several visits that they have to be on site at Mayo Clinic to do the testing. I can't think of many people who wouldn't want to come to Minnesota in January. <laughs> you know, it's a great either. another reason to do so. If you're looking for patients, uh, do you want to give us a number where uh, someone might call? Absolutely. So the number five zero seven two six six. 1965, and to reference this uh, drug study for age-related hearing loss, that'll, that'll get to the right people. Now, obviously, this is a drug, and like any other drug, there are some potential side effects, and we don't want to forget or neglect to talk about those. There must be some. Right. So this drug is um, is not to be used with people that have other drugs that could interfere or interact. So blood pressure medication, and a lot of people who are older, over age 50 are on blood pressure medication. Um, there are some drugs that treat serious infections that can't be used in conjunction with this drug. Uh, young women should not be exposed to this drug because it could affect a developing fetus. So anybody who is still procreating is excluded from this trial. 
what about um, down the line? I mean, how long is the study going to go on before you'll say, here's what our results are and move forward? Right. So the target sample size for this study is 80 people um, at centers across the United States. So once 80 people have completed the 21-day drug trial, then we'll analyze the results and see what we find. And would you suspect that once you uh, hopefully prove that this drug is in fact effective with minimal side effects, that it will be something that people with age-related hearing loss take daily, continuously? That's right. So in order to maintain the benefits of the drug, you'd have to continue taking it. So that's another follow-up question is, in order to determine safety and efficacy, we have to measure this, um, these outcomes in this population over the long term. Now, there is a truly exciting development. Dr. Doug Sladen, who is a hearing and speech specialist at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.